You're listening to a sermon preached at Meridian Church. For more information about Meridian Church, visit meridianchurch.com. It is our hope that this sermon is used by the Holy Spirit to minister to you the grace and peace found in Jesus Christ to the glory of God the Father. And now, here's your sermon audio. Letter to the Philippians, to chapter 4. Our focus this morning will be on 4, 1 through 3. I'll be reading 4, 1 through 11. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For His sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and may share, in his, may share His sufferings, becoming like Him in His death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Holy Father, have mercy on us now, and by your Spirit, may we worship you truly, all of our worship being a boasting, a glorying, Rejoicing in Christ rather than any display of flesh, any confidence in ourself that would be no service of sweet odor to you, but that which is repulsive. Christ's name we ask this. Amen. I think the best place to begin is to look at the word finally. Let's begin with finally. Many a joke has been made concerning a minister's use of the word finally. And not a few ministers have rebutted using this passage that it's biblical to say finally and then proceed for just as long as you've already gone. We're halfway in, finally. He continues. Whenever we read this word, I think we're prone to make one of two mistakes. We either make too big a deal of it or too little. Those who make too big a deal of it see it in bold underlined, and so, because they make so much of it, 
Either they're among those who think, Paul really did end the letter, a letter at this point. So what we have with Philippians is a compilation or a assimilation of two letters that are being presented as one here. Or they'll say, Paul really intended to wrap up his letter, but then got distracted and carried on much further than he originally had intended. Then there are those who make virtually nothing of the word, finally. And they argue that the word can be used and carry the sense of furthermore, and it can. But it's rare that I think it does, and I'm certain that it's not the intent of Paul in this instance. One of our issues is that we read this ancient Jews' words like modern Americans. And so we think that Paul launched into his letters with five points clearly in his mind. He'd already outlined them. And he intended to give equal time to each of them as he took them up. Perhaps it is, it is as simple as this. Say, Paul had five points in mind. But arriving at this one, it's the one he intends all along to develop more time to, to elaborate on. It's the emphatic one, the one he wants to draw their attention to. Some sermons are built like a buffalo. The bulk of the material is up front, and then it tapers off. Some are built like a cheetah. Uniform and streamlined, elegant, well-proportioned. Others are built like a kangaroo. The kick is in the back. And a long, thick, heavy tail follows. I think that's what Paul is doing here. I believe Paul has genuinely arrived at his concluding command. Rejoice in the Lord. And while there are parenthetical statements and digressions that come along the way towards the very end, they are all tied into and relate and supportive of this final command. So if this is the case, I'm not asking you to necessarily buy into it yet. I've made no argument. But if, if this is the case, can you see the magnitude of this finally? It means that once again, you have an encompassing command. In fact, have we not discovered that nearly every command Paul is giving has this kind of encompassing, embracing nature to it so far in this letter? Again, the, the theme we've that I've put before you is that the, the theme of Philippians is the Christian life in general, in total. So this command then frames the rest of this letter. Let me make a case for that. It might prove helpful to pull out of Philippians and see if this is not an anomaly, if the same thing help, happens elsewhere. And maybe by seeing it there, we can better see it here. You're reading along in the letter to the Ephesians, and you come to chapter 3 and verses 1 and 2, and Paul's line of argumentation is interrupted. He writes, For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, and then you'll notice a hyphen in your translation. There's a digression. Assuming that you've heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you. When does Paul resume his thought? Now listen carefully to the way he wrote it again. Chapter 3 and verse 1 of Ephesians. For this reason I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles. For this reason I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus. When does he resume it? Perhaps we could say it's chapter 3 and verse 14. 14 verses later, whenever he says, For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father. But I think it really happens in chapter 4 and verse 1, when he says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord. See the same way he's going to introduce a conclusion? Urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Don't have time to do this much. But I've given you a place where you can do some work. 
Go to Ephesians 3 and 4. Read them through and look at the digression that happens in between 3.1 and 4.1 and note the kind of connection. So whenever Paul says, for this reason, everything he's written in Ephesians leads up to a conclusion. But before he can bring that conclusion fully to bear on him, he realizes there's a necessary digression to fill in some gaps for you to get the weight of what I want you to feel in relation to what I've said. Now, is this the way you would communicate? Is this the way you would outline things? Is this the way you would like things to be laid out for clarity's sake? Perhaps not. Paul is much more linear than John. You've got to get him, give him that much. But is he as linear and outlined as you would prefer as a modern American? If that's the case, even be it so, I would simply call for you to submit to the Word. Not read it how you would like for things to unfold, but read it as it is written. Look for what God is intending to communicate nonetheless. Well, this is the same kind of thing happening in Philippians. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. Now look ahead to chapter 4, verses 4 through 8. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication. With thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Do you see how everything that's unfolding at this point is is tied into this command, rejoice in the Lord. Continues on, the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever's true, whatever's honorable, whatever's just, whatever's pure, whatever's lovely, if there's any, whatever's commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. If you're not convinced... I'll labor the point no further, except in this. I'm going to preach the rest of this sermon and the rest of this book demonstrating this point. But if you want more immediate confirmation, I'd say spend the afternoon reading through Philippians 3 and 4. And see if reading the rest of this letter in light of this command to rejoice in the Lord doesn't help clarify and make sense of things for you. With that established, at least in my mind, let's look to the command itself. Rejoice in the Lord. It's a stunning command. The Apostle Paul, Christ's servant, by the Spirit, commands our heart. This is a devastating command for those who... Think of obedience as only something that they do. If the command concerns an act, or if the command even concerns think in a certain way, that's easy. They can do that. This command devastates that kind of flesh-empowered, motivated, boasting, glorying, confident, acting. He commands the heart. You must not just will to do God's will. You must will it willingly. To... Look at any kind of obedience that you just do and not take any account of your heart as though it's important. To look at that and call it obedience is a pretty name for an ugly thing. It is cloaked rebellion. This is our God's demand. You shall love Yahweh your God with 
all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. Obedience demands the whole of you. Anything minus the whole of you. At best, as we've spoken of, you can call it broken repentance. Uh, Broken obedience, repentant obedience. You're coming to God with a sense of brokenness and a contrite heart, recognizing that your obedience is broken. Now, I think that's a beautiful thing that actually expresses that your heart is in it, you see. And yet you realize there's sin remaining in you. But if you discount that, it's not obedience. If you don't understand that obedience involves the heart, have children. And you will see an obedience that is not obedience. It's cloaked rebellion. It's very clear. They're after their own skin. In complying just in so far as they have to while expressing their unhappiness in the act. I don't believe we borrowed the phrase from Ted Tripp, but certainly the idea was most well communicated by him there. Someone else used the phrase, though, of insisting on obedience with a happy heart from your children and letting them know that anything less is not obedience. You obey with a happy heart. And when they reply that they cannot, well, that's precisely when you let the devastating effect of what we see in the Word of God at this very point land upon them. And you communicate to them the gospel. You're absolutely right that you cannot. You cannot change your own heart. I cannot change my own heart. We need the work, the gracious work of God. If you're not among those who Paul is addressing here as brothers, you cannot obey this command. You cannot obey any command. Remember, Paul began addressing his letter to those who are saints in Christ Jesus. 1-1. If you are not a saint in Christ Jesus, you cannot rejoice in Christ Jesus. It's this simple. In order to rejoice in the Lord, you need to be in the Lord. And if you are a brother, if you are in Christ, then you understand that you're only able to obey this command as you're able to obey any of God's commands. 2.12, 13, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to do for His good pleasure. Thus, Seeing how this command gets to the heart, the saints, understanding this, are all the more eager. I hope you are. You're hearing this command, and you want to do this. What does this mean? How, what does it mean to rejoice in the Lord? I want it, but what does it exactly mean, and how do I do it? As far as what it means, and leading us towards how to do it, It's as simple as begin reflecting by the phrase, in the Lord. What does that mean? These are just words that we pass over too easy. We read, rejoice in the Lord, and we just think that means be happy. You try to obey this command that way, that will be flesh, and you will get nowhere with it. Or you'll get worked up for a little bit. There will be nothing abiding and substantial and rooted in your joy. Does it mean rejoice of Christ, rejoice concerning Christ, rejoice because of Christ? Or does it mean rejoice by Christ, through Christ, with Christ? Does it mean rejoice in the Lord? What's the nature of that in there? Is He that which we rejoice in, or is it because we're in Him that we rejoice? You remember whenever Bilbo greeted Gandalf with good morning? Gandalf replied, what do you mean? Do you wish me a good morning? 
I mean that as a good morning whether I want it or not, or that you feel good this morning, or that it is a morning to be good on. Which Bilbo replied, all of them at once. What does it mean to rejoice in the Lord? All of them at once. It's only as we are in Christ that we're able to rejoice. And the Christ in whom we are, having the ability to rejoice, is that which we rejoice in. He whom we rejoice in. Or we can come at it this way. What does it mean to rejoice in the Lord? Remember, as we entered into the body of this letter, it begins at 1 in verse 27 where Paul says, Live as citizens worthy of the gospel of Christ. And as we examine that, that we saw that that was an, an encompassing command for the whole of the Christian life, and especially for this letter. So if that's the case, rejoicing in the Lord is living worthy of the gospel of Christ. The gospel means, the word gospel means good news. The gospel is good news. It's the best of news. And so now do you see rejoicing in the Lord is becoming, it's fitting, it's worthy of the gospel. What does it mean to rejoice in the Lord? It means to live in a way that fits the gospel. Now I hope your light bulbs are going on. How do you obey this command? And the answer is, you don't look at yourself. And you don't start thinking, I'm going to rejoice. You start by looking at the Lord. In whom and by whom you rejoice. You begin by looking at the gospel. This is not a command you go about obeying directly. It can only happen indirectly. Martin Lloyd-Jones warns, When we are told to rejoice in the Lord, we must avoid the error of trying to do so by a direct attack upon our emotional nature. How then is it to be done? Well, first of all, our rejoicing is always something that results from a realization of our position in Christ. My joy is the product, almost the byproduct of my concentration upon my relationship to God in Jesus Christ. And then Paul says that to write the same things to them is no trouble to him and it's safe for them. So Paul has or he's going to repeat something. What is he repeating? Those who would argue that there are two letters that have been compounded into one here might argue and do argue that what Paul is going to repeat are his concerns about these false teachers. But as I read this letter in comparison to the way I read Corinthians, it's very apparent whenever you read Corinthians, there's another letter that's being written and what the subject matter in it entailed to some degree is brought to your mind, by the letter itself. As I read Philippians, I see no indication that Paul has spoken to them concerning these false teachers in another letter, as if it's something that he's been dealing with in his ongoing. I think his tone would be much different if he was having to repeat himself concerning these men to the Philippians, as if this were a danger that they weren't heeding his warning concerning. What is he repeating? What are these same things? I believe it's clear that it's the command to rejoice. Whereas Paul commanded them to rejoice already. 2.14 Don't grumble. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. And that passage there is framed on the other side by the positive expression of the same command. Do all things without grumbling. 2.17 and 18 I am glad and rejoice with all you. With you all, likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. But long before Paul explicitly commands joy in this letter, he's been commending joy again and again and again. He told them that he lifts up his prayers to the Father concerning them with joy, 1 and verse 3. He said 
that whenever others preach the gospel, even be their motives false, so long as it's the true gospel of Christ that's preached, he rejoices, 1 and 18. And then he says he resolves to rejoice, anticipating the work of the gospel that lies ahead of him, 1, 18 and 19. And that work that lies ahead of him involves laboring for the progress and joy of the Philippians in the faith, 125. So you see again why I would say this is an encompassing command. Rejoice in the Lord. You see, if this is true. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me. Finally says this command, rejoice in the Lord, tense everything that follows. And then whenever he says to write the same things to you, means that this command, rejoice in the Lord, tense everything that has preceded It's an encompassing command. And if you don't believe this command is encompassing for this letter, at least acknowledge by this that it's encompassing for all your life whenever he says in in verse 4, rejoice in the Lord always. And now here may be this next word, just one word in there with a different ear. Rejoice in the Lord always Again, same thing. I will say it even a further time, Philippians. And then a further time upon that. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say, rejoice. But then abruptly, from rejoice, you're told, beware. Is there any connection between rejoice and look out? Look out three times. Now we got repetition again. Look out, look out, look out. I think this passage is framed something like that passage that we've, I've mentioned in 2, 12 through 18, where Paul goes from do not grumble, do all things without grumbling, to rejoice. You have the same kind of contrasting way of putting this before the people of God here. Rejoice, look out. And the way that you begin to see that they're related becomes clear, unavoidable. Whenever this looking out concerns those who put confidence in the flesh. And Paul says, we Put none in the flesh. We boast, we glory in Christ. Which is to say, we rejoice in the Lord. These false teachers are opposed to the gospel, which is the good news, which means they're opposed to joy in Christ. Pursuing joy in Christ is directly related then to what Paul spoke of as his endeavor in the defense of the gospel, 1 and verse 16. Defending the gospel is pursuing joy. Or his desire to hear that the Philippians 1, 27 through 28 are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Joy is serious. Who are these false teachers? They're dogs, evildoers, mutilators of the flesh. Frank Thillman has paraphrased this verse. Beware the curs. Beware the criminals. Beware the cutters. this Philippian church being attacked by some bizarre cult? Dogs? Evildoers? Mutilators of the flesh? No. Paul's words here are full of sharp. Sarcasm and mockery. 
to be described in this way would have infuriated the false teachers to which Paul is referring. This is the same breed of false teachers that we encounter in Paul's letter to the Galatians. We often refer to them as Judaizers. The Judaizers were teachers within the church that insisted that while you need Christ, you must observe the law in order to stand right before God. Specifically, they would emphasize circumcision as part of this. Galatians 5, 2-4 gives you some insight into what Paul was combating. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he's obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ, you would, who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. Now, the issue isn't circumcision itself, but their reason for doing so. Paul would have Timothy circumcised, not in relation to the gospel, but to give Timothy an inroads. But if they're acting concerning circumcision for the express purpose of standing just before God, Paul says you have nothing to do with Christ. You're on your own and you've got to do it all. So in understanding that these men were Jews who had become Christians or they were Jewish proselytes who had become Christians and wanted to remain very Jewish, or they were Christians who had now become Jewish proselytes in a way, understanding that helps you to see the stinging nature of Paul's words here, their bite and their significance. These men are Dogs. This would be a term of derision that Jews used concerning Gentiles. One problem we have whenever we read this passage and understanding it is that we think too highly of our dogs and we think too little of Pharisees. And to the ancient Jew, their emotional level would have been the same as ours, but in opposite directions. They would think the way of Pharisees that most of us think of our dogs. Dogs were scavengers. They were a nuisance. They were not pets. Well, with each of these terms, Paul is flipping the tables. And though this is inflammatory, inflammatory, incendiary language, this is why Paul said it, not simply to ignite, but for the cause of truth. As you read it, you think, yes, but did he say it in love? Love is exactly why he did say it. Love for the great shepherd and love for the sheep. Love for the sheep does not tolerate dogs. These dogs thought the Gentiles, as they were uncircumcised, remained outside of the covenant. Not in right standing with God. They were not justified. But as they insisted on circumcision, it was they themselves who were dogs outside of the covenant to be cast in outer darkness while many from east and west were recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob who were justified by faith and not by works. Then refers to them as evildoers. Now think of this. These are men who pride themselves on keeping the law, on doing righteousness, and he calls them doers of evil. If you are out of Christ and you want to stand on your own two feet, all your righteousness is like filthy 
menstrual cloths, the scripture tells us. All your good doing is evil doing. And Paul builds up to this harshest statement, calling them mutilators of the flesh. Rather than carrying on the covenant sign of circumcision, as it was given to Abraham, Paul says they are like the pagan priests who mutilate their bodies in worshiping demon gods. They mutilate the flesh. Unless you think Paul's gotten worked up here. Here's the way he puts it in his letter to the Galatians. I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. Paul uses sharp words to cut off the cutters. He uses sharp words like a scalpel to remove these false teachers like a foreskin from the body of Christ. The body of Christ at large is sick. And there are too few shepherds willing to do surgery with sharp words. By naming names and even at times when justified Calling names. Why should the Philippians, why should we be on guard against such men? Well, first, do you not see by the warning itself, look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. Can you not see by the warning itself, you're being told this, everything that they're calling for you to be, they're not. Look out for them. They don't regard themselves as dogs or evildoers or mutilate the flesh. Everything they regard themselves to be, they're not. But here's the real reason Paul builds up to verse 3. For we are the circumcision worship God, who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Everything they call for you to be if you are in Christ, everything they call for you to be, you already are. When false teachers tried to distract us from Christ to ourself, from Christ's work to our own work, they destroy joy. Look out. And insofar as they destroy your joy, it means they have eliminated your ability to live as a citizen Worthy of the gospel of Christ. Look out. The Philippians don't need these men to mutilate their flesh because they are the circumcision. Which is to say they are God's covenant people. Romans 2, 28-29, Paul explains, No one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. Physical circumcision was a sign. It signified something. Romans 4, 11. Abraham received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness which he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. He had the righteousness while he was uncircumcised and circumcision comes as a sign of what he already has. The purpose, Paul continues in Romans 4.11, was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised so that righteousness would be counted to them as well. Heart circumcision is a gift that's extended to you in Christ. Colossians 2.11 In Him you also were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Or Paul gets at it this way in Ephesians 2, 11 through 13. 
Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise. But now, having no hope in the world, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Not by your flesh and blood, but by the flesh and blood of Christ. You are the true Israel of God, the circumcision, heirs of the promise. Now, I very much doubt that any of you are dealing with anyone who's insisting on circumcision as necessary for your right standing before God. I do know some of you who have encountered people who have told you that you need to, yes, you're circumcised, you, you got that one, but you need to keep the feast. You need to eat kosher. For the church to live in holiness unto God, you need to observe the Torah in these specific kind of ways. And only until we do so will God's goodness and grace be bestowed on His people. I don't have time to get into a digression here except to say my response to such persons is not that I have a lower opinion of the law than they do, but that I have a higher one and I think I keep it better. Because I embrace the fullness of it all that's come in Christ. But I digress. I doubt you're dealing with anyone insisting on circumcision as necessary to your justification. But there are myriads of false teachers both within the body of Christ and without that they are telling you, you must be. You must be. And whenever you hear it, most of the time, have this in your mind. When they, when they say, you must be, very likely, they are not. And you already are in Christ. It might be Rome telling you that works are necessary for your right standing before God. It might be the church of Christ telling you that you have to be baptized. And it's upon baptism that you actually enter into right standing before God. It might be some within a charismatic circle that say, unless you've received the fullness of the Spirit as evidenced perhaps by speaking in tongues, then you have no part in Christ. Or it could just be lesser things, that you're just a, you're just, they're second tier Christians, and you're a, just a first tier Christians, and you must be. You already are, saints. In Christ, you are. Neither do they, neither do we, need their works. Because we worship by the Spirit of God. Now, there's a contrast here that I think is a bit obscured to us. It's no fault of the translators. We just don't think along these terms. But the word you have as worship can be translated service. We serve by the Spirit of God. The image Paul is likely trying to evoke here is of the priest serving in the temple. The sons of Aaron, who were mutilated, by which I mean they just had some kind of deformity. Any sons of Aaron who were deformed could not serve in the temple. These mutilators of the flesh, that's the image that Paul is conjuring up here, are excluded from temple service. By their insistence on the flesh, they're excluded. Paul says, we worship by the Spirit of God. Their worship is all flesh, it's no spirit. Their service is not worship at all, it's evil doing. In Christ, we are the true priesthood. 
And we offer up spiritual sacrifices through Jesus Christ. 1 Peter 2. As you come to Him, Jesus, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable through Jesus Christ. Jesus said, God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and in truth. The false teaching of these men is void on both accounts. There's no truth to it. Because there's no truth to it, you can be certain there's no spirit involved. And finally, as far as this argument's concerned, finally, and we're approaching the end as well. But finally, as Paul's, ar- Paul's argument here is concerned, we're to look out for these dogs because we are those who glory in Christ and put no confidence in the flesh. The best way to look out for barking dogs is to drown them out with joy in the Lord. If you're not glorying in Christ, your confidence is in your flesh, with your confidence in your own flesh, that's whenever their barking attracts. By the way, your confidence in the flesh can look like despair and hopelessness, as well as pride. In both instances, you're putting your confidence in your flesh rather than Christ. It's the lonely soul that's not in communion with Christ, that thinks that solace can be found in getting a dog. Saints, you are wed to Christ. Glory in Him. Rejoice in Him. Boast in Him. Flesh boasting is contrary to Christ rejoicing. Paul ended his letter to the Galatians making this emphatic. For even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. But far be it from me to boast, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. For neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. And as for all who walk by this rule, peace, mercy upon them, and upon the Israel of God. With that, do you hear it again, the encompassing nature of this? Far be it from me to boast, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Can you see the harmony of the text now? Rejoice in the Lord. Look out for dogs. Rejoicing in the Lord is set against look out for dogs in the same way that glorying in Christ is set against putting confidence in the flesh. The American novelist Flannery O'Connor appears to have known something of the seriousness, the tension, the war that's involved in this. In a letter to a friend, she writes, Always you renounce a lesser good for a greater. The opposite is what sin is. I sent you the Sewell piece and the one on St. Thomas and Freud, some pieces that she had written. I sent these to you, she says. The latter has the answer in it to what you call my struggle to submit, which is not a struggle to submit, but a struggle to accept and with passion. I mean possibly with joy. Picture me with my ground 
teeth, stalking joy, fully armed too, as it's a highly dangerous quest. That's the seriousness with which we are to pursue rejoicing in the Lord that we're called to here as evident by the following command, look out. Now, O'Connor seems to be speaking in reference to battling enemies within, the enemy of self. But there are also enemies without, dogs, evildoers, mutilators of the flesh. And if you still cannot see the connection, perhaps if we put it in reverse, it'll bring it out for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and it's safe for you. It's safe. Look out. It's safe to be reminded of this. Rejoice in the Lord. It's why we gather not just on this day, but we gather every Lord's Day to celebrate that act in its climax. Christ is risen. He's risen indeed. Let's pray. Holy Father, forgive us the laxity the frivolous slapstick kind of way we too often go about seeking to rejoice in You. And put in us an earnest seriousness to live worthy of the gospel of Christ by rejoicing in our Lord always. And to be on guard, striving side by side with one mind and one spirit for the faith of the gospel of Jesus Christ. In His name, I ask this. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon audio from Meridian Church. Please feel free to share this resource with others. We only ask that you do not alter the content in any way. Again, you can find more resources at meridianchurch.com.